You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I'm closing out another set of issues with a look at The Nom number 25, which takes place at the end of January and beginning of February 1968, which is when our song for this episode, Green Tambourine by the Lemon Pipers, hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Our issue was dated December 1988, and it came out on August 30th, 1988. This title is Hue, City of Death. The credits are Doug Murray, writer, Wayne Van Sant, penciler, Jeff Isherwood, inker, Phil Felix, letterer, colorist, Don Daly, editor, Larry Hama, consulting editor, Pat Redding, managing editor, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. We look open with a worried set of eyes asking, Andy, are you sure you want to do this? Clark replies, trust me, Jimmy, just trust me. We see that Clark is playing poker with the Marine he met a few issues ago, and this time they're on a Marine base, as he and Jimmy were in Da Nang seeing a podiatrist. Clark wins the hand and makes a comment about how there's nothing to worry about because it's the Tet truce, but it's not just any Tet. It is January 31st, 1968, the Tet Offensive. We're just outside of Quezon, where the enemy is about to start firing. Mortars hit the base and the men head for the bunkers. Clark offers to help the Marines and they begin firing as a huge contingent of enemy soldiers begins rushing toward them. The guys are holding their own and we see a tank come over a nearby hill. They don't have any anti-tank weapons and the guys fall back, trying to take out as many as VC as they can while they fall back. A chopper arrives and as it flies off and clears Huey, it is clear that the assault in Quezon was not an isolated incident. As Clark helps some of the medics, he is ordered by a marine officer to join Sergeant Grill and his group of men because they need a medic. They go walking through Huey and almost immediately one of the guys is hit by sniper fire. They start firing and eventually take down a building to get the sniper. The marine who was hit is going to be okay because his flak jacket stopped the bullet. They move through the city some more and find a mass grave of small children, which stops them dead in their tracks. But they move on, looking for the VC that were in the area and coming upon a bridge over the Perfume River, saying they have to get to the bridge before, well, before it blows up, which is exactly what happens. The next morning, the guys are woken up and told to get ready for an amphibious landing. The boats load up, and when they are halfway across the river, the Viet Cong open up with everything they have. The Marines then begin firing back from the other side of the river, providing cover fire as the boats reach their landings and begin spilling out troops. Some time later, with the river secured and the military bridge put into operation, the Marines reach a VC strongpoint. It's a cathedral that the French built for Joan of Arc, and they're supposed to take it without harming it, per headquarters orders. They rush the cathedral, and while there are a couple of VC troops, what they find inside is a massacre, and it seems that the VC killed everyone who had arrived for morning mass. Clark treats some wounds, and there's word from base that basically the fight is over for the moment. Jimmy says, If Charlie took a beating like this all over, maybe the war will be over soon. Clark replies, Maybe, Jimmy, but our, but maybe our side won't know who really lost, and our maybe our friends in the press won't tell them. 
this issue kind of picks up where last issue left off when um, when the at the end of the issue where, where Phillips and, and them were in the in the PX um, I'm sorry the club watching TV they were talking about um, you know Kason and, and and that area and and one of them said they aren't you know uh, Aesop and Rubino up there. So we get, you know, that mentioned, and then this is where Aesop and Rubino were. And what it ends up being is another one of those issues where Doug Murray wants to show us another side of the Vietnam War by looking at another group rather than the 23rd Infantry. And he gets a couple of our guys out into the out of the hooch in order to do it. Um, like I said, it's Clark this time who seems to be our main character or, or one of our main characters in the book. And he's been more or less kind of that main character or in that lead role throughout a lot of the last storyline and the last year's worth of issues. I Like I said, I like that uh, Murray followed up on last issue by showing us exactly where those two were when they were mentioned at the end of the issue, but I also like that he followed up on the previous Marine story, having Clark visit the Marine he befriended in issue number 19. And while that story did seem a little forced, as did parts of last issue... This is a little bit smoother. Uh, maybe it's because we're in, still in the middle of Tet Offensive, and we do want to see how much is going on on a level that is a little higher than the local level we tend to get with the 23rd, because that is a well-known event as opposed to certain battles or things like that that, are, uh, that you can kind of focus on a hyper-local level. The Marines are just average soldiers like the boys from the Army, and they don't seem to be portrayed in a way that's caricaturish. And the carnage of this part of the war is shown in a way that I'm still a little surprised at. Despite its being direct market only, the NOM at this point was still a code-approved book, so showing a mass grave of little kids in a church full of dead bodies had to be done as well tastefully as you could possibly do it. Van Sant and Isherwood, who are still doing an excellent job, use a camera angle of looking from the bodies of the kids to us, showing just a few limbs in shadow and, and giving us a wide shot of the church uh, where all the kind of bodies are, the bodies of the people who are attending Mass are just kind of laid out without real, you know, gore or anything being shown in order to do this. And it's still effective. Um, as I said way back during the Michael Golden uh, tenure on art, you don't need to show all the gore in order to make me react to a scene like that. Um, there was a scene in issue, oh, I want to say nine, but I can't remember. It might have been issue four, where the guys come upon uh, a bunch of villagers tied to posts and they've been executed. And the the, the dead villagers are shown in shadow. But it's it's the way it's done is really really effective, which which I think speaks volumes to the the art teams that have worked on this book up at this point. They really knew how to get the emotional impact across without having to be gratuitously violent or gratuitously gory, because the war was brutal. I mean, as we saw last episode, even though. That was a police action, or an action by a policeman. There was still a good amount of brutality in an execution. But this war was brutal, and uh, the enemy was often brutal, and the reaction of the Marines to what they find in terms of their brutality was enough for me to really believe that that was what was, uh, you know, the things were as bad as it seemed. 
I like the action here as well. Um, this wasn't a very hard issue to summarize because a lot of it is just action. Uh, this this read a lot quicker than some of the other issues uh, in the past, although not as quickly as a modern comic book. But still, uh, the rush of the VC toward the bunkers on the night of January 31st and the surprise of the guys when they see the tank is well played. The amphibious assault is also well played, and Murray does a callback to D-Day, in fact, by saying in the narration boxes, with the boats halfway across, the Viet Cong open up with everything they have. Congress may call this a conflict, but to anyone who has seen the horror of World War II, this is war. I also like that we got some city fighting, which was a change from all the humping at the boonies that we've gotten over the course of the last six issues or so, kind of in conjunction with what we had last issue as well. In all honesty, if I've got any criticism of the issue, it's really that it's it's the cover. Uh, Ron Wagner did the cover. It shows a VC soldier gripping a claymore uh, behind barbed wire, and it's a perfectly nice cover. But there's not that much of a direct connection to the issue. I mean, I, granted, I guess it's him hiding in wait to, to strike across enemy lines as part of the ambush of the Tet Offensive. And you could say it's that, but the connection is uh, tenuous. Compared to the, the shot we had of the pilot ejecting the building blowing up in Clark kind of flying away uh, in that one issue, the, the the shot of the woman performing on stage. Last issue's cover's depiction of Eddie Adams' famous photo, except from a, from a different point of view. Uh, this doesn't have, you know, this could have been used for any issue. It's not as, it's not as direct uh, to it. But again, that's a nitpick. I mean, the cover's actually kind of nice. It's a nice cover. There's, and, and I'm just trying to find something to to criticize in a solid issue that was a solid way to finish this portion of the series. So I'm going to take a break, uh, and when I get back, I'll have historical context, letters, and ads. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries. And to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.podomatic.com. Way is a city of 340,000 people located on the Perfume River a few miles inland from the South China Sea. It is a former imperial seat, has a thriving tourism industry because of all of its historical monuments, and it is famously depicted in a popular 
It is famously depicted in popular culture during the climactic scene in Stanley Kubrick's film Full Metal Jacket, which I will uh, cover at some point on over the course of, of doing this podcast. The Cathedral to Joan of Arc did exist at one point as well. It was eventually destroyed. Uh, a quick Google search of the cathedral pulls up a Harvard Art Museum's website and a picture from March of 68 of the cathedral's ruins that were taken by Gordon W. Gahan, which shows the hollowed-out building and quite a bit of debris in front of it. So I guess with all the fighting, the building was lost anyway, despite headquarters' orders. The Battle of Huey is described by the history place as the following. In the battle for Huey during Tet, 12,000 NVA and Viet Cong troops stormed the lightly defended historical city, then begin systematic executions of over 3,000 quote-unquote enemies of the people, including South Vietnamese government officials, captured South Vietnamese officers, and Catholic priests. South Vietnamese troops and three U.S. Marine battalions counterattack and engage in the heaviest fighting of the entire Tet Offensive. They retake the old Imperial City, house by house, street by street, aided by American air and artillery strikes. On February 24th, United States Marines occupy the Imperial Palace in the heart of the Citadel, and the battle soon ends with the North Vietnamese defeat. American losses are 142 Marines killed and 857 wounded, 74 U.S. Army killed and 507 wounded. South Vietnamese suffer 384 killed and 1,830 wounded. NVA killed or put at over 5,000. Aside from these specific events, we do have quite a bit happening this time around. On February 2nd, President Johnson calls the Tet Offensive a failure, and while it was considered a turning point in the war for the American forces, it actually was, ironically, a Vietnamese military failure. The Viet Cong really came out in force and suffered such huge losses that from this point on, more and more of the war fought by the North Vietnamese was fought on a more conventional level. However, the offensive was successful because it was huge in eroding support for the United States in terms of the war and the home front. The war itself would become increasingly popular as the year went on. February 8th, 21 Marines were killed by the NVA at Kaesan. February 12th, we have the Phong Ni and Phong Nat Massacre, where South Korean troops massacred 69 to 79 armed, armed villagers. And then on February 24th, South Korean troops would commit the Ha Mi Massacre killing 135 people. On February 27th on the CBS Evening News, Walter Cronkite tells the public, quote, the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate, end quote. Of course, Cronkite had a reputation for being the most trusted man in America, so opinions like this would definitely sway public opinion. It is, February 1968, overall a volatile month. You can see where Doug Murray's comments about what the public was seeing versus what actually happened were coming from. But also don't forget that this wasn't the only thing going on. The civil rights movement continues in full swing with a protest at a bowling alley in South Carolina being broken up by police and leaving three people dead, as well as campus protests in Wisconsin and North Carolina. As I said before, as we head further into 1968, things will get even more eventful. But to end our historical night notes on a brighter side, we have February 19th, 1968, which is the first episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood.
It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? I watched that show every day when I was a little kid. Incoming this month, uh, Chris Avalos uh, of Canoga Park, California, says that he, he needs a favor. I have the MIA bracelet of one Commander Stanley Olmstead, October 17, 1965. If anyone knows anything about Commander Olmstead, please contact me at the address below. One question, could we see more of the Thai corporate divisions and maybe some of the ROCs, which are the Republic of Korea divisions? Uh, Doug puts the word out about the commander, and then he says, any, as for the ties and the ROCs, and the war, that's in the works along with the Khmer Rouge. Catherine N. Smith writes in, says that she's impressed. Um, she was glad to see a story about the home front. She said, how about one involving on R&R in Hawaii? I was there in 69 and was really bowled over by the warmth of the people. We were welcomed everywhere we went, given free drinks, reduced or free admissions, even two free cab rides. Can you imagine that happening in New York? The people in Hawaii had not forgotten Pearl Harbor, and they consequently had a very different attitude toward the military and conflict in Vietnam than the rest of the United States. Each time you've printed one of my letters, I've gotten letters from vets in return. The one most compelling theme has been of loneliness. If you choose to print this, I am willing to be a mail drop for these guys, and we'll keep a list of names and addresses for those who would like to correspond with each other, as long as the response isn't huge. I can even handle the postage, though I would appreciate Sazies. Self-addressed stance envelopes. Um, some of the people who have written in are in jail, some have out of work, and none is still in the military. Many have failed marriages and are all lonely. We are still paying for Vietnam, it seems. And Doug says, had there been more people out there like you around during the war, during and after the war, maybe there wouldn't be so much loneliness and alienation. Many thanks for your offer. And here's the info for anyone who wants it. Please feel free to get back to me if there's anything I can do to help out. There, this, there seems to be over the last couple of issues, and it's very possible, I think, there, none of these, what's funny is that none of the letters in the last couple of issues directly address any specific issue. Um, but there has been something with um, Ramnarain being taken prisoner of war, and maybe this kind of stems from this, because there's another letter asking, you know, do you believe that there are more still MIAs and POWs in Vietnam? Do you have friends that are MIA and POW? And Doug replies, um, I personally believe that there are still Americans in Vietnam. Whether or not you want to call them POWs or MIAs is unimportant. I also believe that they will never come back simply because of all the political outrage that would result. On the personal side, I'm really not sure if there are folks I knew there. Remember, guys often went from multiple tours or left their friends behind when they rotated back to the States. I really don't know if friends I left behind are still there. Somebody asks about uh, the Nam magazine, um, says that his dad was a medic of the 2503rd of the 173rd Brigade, and he received the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star, and he's very proud of the people who served. Um, And Doug gives his best to his dad. 
Joseph Conti writes in saying that he served in, in Vietnam um, with the 168th uh, Combat Engineer Battalion in various places. He said, uh, we we built Hooters so infantry units coming back out of the bush could have a decent place to sleep. And uh, we had so many stories to tell, and maybe I will read one of them in future issues. Until then, thanks for telling it like it was. Keep up the good work. Doug says, like number 24, the history of this issue of the NAM is based on historical fact. The ca- attacks at Quezon, Hue, and Da Nang were truly part of the Vietnam War. The amphibious assault across the Perfume River, the massacre in Hue, and the attack on the cathedral all really happened as they do here. In the U.S., the Tet attacks were considered a great victory for the NVN and Kong. To those of us there, it was the NVN who were defeated. History shows who was right. Nam notes this time around. Here's some terminology for you. After all, we're with the Marines this time around. AT, anti-tank weapon, bazooka or other weapons designed to pierce the armor of the average tank. A claymore is an anti-personnel weapon used widely in the Nam. A shape charged against a metal plate directly shrapnel toward the enemy, effectively stopping them. Sea rats, type C rations, the normal rations in or near the field, not as good as A rations, but better than K's. Flak vests, lightly armored vests used to turn flak and small arms fire, generally not used by the army due to their weight and tendency to hold heat, required use by the corps. Jarhead, popular nickname for marines used because of their haircuts and the way it made their heads look. LZ was a landing zone. Most tick right away or real quick. On the block, back home or acting like you are. On twos. A six-barrel mobile recoilless rifle array used almost exclusively by the Marines. And then, of course, the United States Marine Corps, Uncle Sam's Misguided Children. All right, um, we have no more board games for our ads. No more board games. Take to the skies with TSR's new action-packed adventure board games. We have a Dragonlance game and that Buck Rogers game I was talking about last time around. Ooh, Airwolf! Real engine powered model helicopter. Fly your own airwolf holo- Flying your own air- airwolf helicopter is a blast, but it's not for the timid. That's because the airwolf's powered by a real piston driven Cox .049 engine. Fire that baby up, watch airwolf's huge blades gain rotation and speed, and let it fly. Your airwolf climbs 100 feet into the sky, then the engine runs out of fuel. Your airwolf begins to fail, but no worry, everything is cool. The sudden loss of altitude causes the auto rotation blades to change pitch. Your airwolf slows and settles in for a Perfect soft landing. You're proud. You proved your ability. You can fly your own Cox.049 engine powered Airwolf helicopter. Visit your favorite hobby shop or other retailer to get yourself an Airwolf and have a blast. The Gun.Smoke game again from Capcom. We have we have Nintendo Game and Watch. I guess this was was Game Boy out by then? Game Boy not a, may not have been out yet, but it is a now take your favorite Nintendo titles with you anywhere. Nintendo Game and Watch lets you play Donkey Kong or Super Mario Brothers in a car bus or even in title um, with your friends. Twenty four titles to choose from. I think it's this is very much like those Tiger games, which were the kind of LCD ones where you were playing like the one game, but you had to buy like the separate titles. Unlike the Game Boy, which I think would come out within the next year or two, that had its own cartridges. Um, bubble Yum, show us your bubble contest. Your zanious Bubble Yum photos could snap up great prizes, like a video camera. Marvel Supermart. There's the usual stuff there. Yours from Nickelodeon. You can get a Finders Keepers t-shirt. 
Now I have to look that up because I'm pretty sure I remember that game show. A Double Dare t-shirt, which would be freaking awesome because Double Dare was freaking awesome. And a, a cap, a bicycle cap, which whatever, a Nick Yo-Yo and a Nickelodeon backpack. Marvel uh, bullpen bulletins. The profile this time around is on Mike Rockwitz, who's drawn by Bob Camp wearing a White Castle t-shirt, of which I heartily approve. Alex Saviak had a kid. There's this whole thing about how being an assistant editor and, and the editing and things that they that they do. Ooh, big full page ad for Inferno, drawn by Mark Silvestri and Terry Austin, showing uh, Madeline Pryor and Sim in what looks to be like kind of the ruins of New York and the laid out bodies of the X Men, New Mutants, and X Factor are before them. And Sim saying, "Good morning, M O U R N." <laughs> I'm Sim. I know that Inferno wasn't supposed to start until September, but I'm not a nice guy. That's why I jumped the gun and started the mayhem a little early. Have a blast, bring marshmallows. Uh, and this is um, this is like that. Sil- so the Sylvester era of X Men was actually pretty. I had quite a number of those issues, and they're actually pretty good. But man, eighties hair, like really, really bad. 80s hair. Still, Inferno's not a bad storyline. I don't think I've ever... I think I might have read it in a trade or read bits and pieces of it. I don't know if I've ever actually read the whole thing. We have... uh, uh, The same Marvel subscription ad and then the the Shed a Little Light in our upcoming hits Ultra video game with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then the Candelicious Snake with the big Candelicious square in the middle of it um, is on the back cover. That will just about do it for issue number 25 of the NOM. Um, Next time around, I'm actually taking a break from the NOM. I'm taking a break from the Vietnam War entirely for an episode that covers Eric Maria Remarque's novel, all quiet on the Western Front. Uh, it'll be an exercise episode covering the novel, two movie adaptations, as well as the poetry and songs of World War One. So come back in two weeks for that, and then in another two weeks, I'll have issue number 26, and we'll pick up where we left off, uh, hopefully seeing some old friends. So until then, thanks for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. (laughs) 